0: Our scripture reading tonight is from Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you are here worshiping with us tonight. Um, each night that you are here, God brings you here for a specific reason, and we pray every week that exactly who is here um, it needs to be here. And on a night like tonight, you can really know that because… We have a wedding that took all of our scripture readers and all of our percussionists and most of our vocalists, um, but then it's also the beginning of a holiday week. So if you are here tonight, God brought you here for such a time as this. So uh, we are excited to be here with you tonight. We're glad God brought you here, and I hope you are ready to eat Pounds of turkey. Pounds and pounds of turkey. We have a Thanksgiving meal after the service. We are excited to invite you to stick around. We'll roll some tables out and we'll eat a meal together. And we are are glad to share that meal with you. Uh, Tonight we are finishing up our series that we have been going through since the semester started. It is called The Story of God, where we are taking a look at the story of God as told in the Bible. We went through the entire story of Scripture in just a few weeks, um, and hopefully you found yourself in the story. Hopefully, as we talked about God's Word and, and the narrative that went all the way from beginning to end, hopefully you saw things that were applicable to your life. Hopefully you found yourself saying, that's me, or I can relate to that concept. Well, if that hasn't been overtly clear to you, tonight it will be. We wanted to take one last sermon, to help you find your place in the story. Because what we believe is that this Bible, God's Word, is not just the story of God, but it's the story of humanity. And we find ourselves in it. And so we want to make sure that we find ourselves in it tonight. So the majority of tonight is going to be application. How do we apply this as people? How do we respond to the story of God? How do we respond to this as a church? How do we respond to this as humanity? How do we respond to this if we are Jesus followers? So that's what we want to take tonight to do. I want to start tonight where we left off last week in the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And I said last week one of the keys for understanding Revelation is to understand that the majority of what Revelation is talking about has already actually taken place in history. Because the purpose of Revelation is not to tell us about the end times and when will Jesus come back. And so we can get out our charts and do the math and figure out the day he's coming back. People have been doing that for 2,000 years and they've been wrong. Um, So that's a waste of time. What Revelation's trying to tell us is Jesus is coming back. And not only that, but he has been sitting on a throne throughout all of human history. And so there's a portion in Revelation um, in chapter 11 where it goes through and these seals and these scrolls are being opened up. And as they're opened up, these weird things happen with uh, dragons and people with multiple heads and all these crazy things are taking place. But basically what God is showing the Apostle John is, I have been on the throne and I have preordained the events of history. But then there's one more seal that is remaining, and that seal is the history of actually the future of what is to come. So the first six seals tell us the history, and then this last seal tells us of what will come. So I don't think the clicker is working here. Rachel, can Genius. That's why we pay her the big bucks. All right. The seventh seal is opened up, and this is what we read in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth." This is telling us that there is a kingdom to come where Jesus sits on an earthly throne and the kingdom is fully brought to earth. This is the end of all things. This is where history and the story of God and our story as humanity is headed. And throughout this story of God, hopefully, we've been paying attention to the main character. Before we talk about our place in the story, we need to recognize that Jesus is the main character of the story. And if we lose sight of that, we're going to be off. If we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the main character of this story, and also the main character of human history, and the most important figure in our lives, then we are going to go sideways. It's just like if you are watching a movie, and you kind of think you know the main character, but then come to find out you've been watching the wrong main character all the way through. I've mentioned this uh, movie before. It, It's not like one of my favorite movies, but I just think it's a great example of storytelling. No Country for Old Men. And in that movie, I actually didn't like it the first time that I watched it. Now I like it okay, but the first time I watched it, I didn't like it at all. And the reason is because I made this exact mistake. I watched the wrong main character throughout the movie. I thought that there was one main character, and I should have known by the title that the main character was an old man. So I didn't pay attention to who the main character was, and it threw me off. I didn't understand the story, the narrative, and specifically the ending made no sense because I didn't know who the main character is. The book of Revelation and throughout Scripture tells us that Jesus is the main character. We see here in Revelation that there is a kingdom that is yet to come, but we also see that in present day, the first six seals tell us that Jesus is now building a kingdom Here on this earth. So before we wrap this series up and get to the application, I think it's important that we see this theme in scripture of the kingdom of God. So tonight we will take a look at how the life of Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God is like. We're going to see how Jesus makes a way for us to be in God's kingdom, and then we're going to see what it looks like when Jesus brings his kingdom once and for all. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you tonight. God, we look forward to what you have to say to us in your word and through your spirit and through your people even tonight, God. God, as we wrap up this series, we pray that we would see our place in the story. God, show us very clearly where we stand with you. Show us very clearly what you have called us to. Show us very clearly what you want our lives and what you want this church to be about as we move into the winter. God, we pray that you'd help us to see what we otherwise cannot see. Give us spiritual eyes to see. God, give me the words that communicate who you are clearly. God, we want to hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen in the birth narrative of Jesus, I've been reading in the morning through Luke and the birth narrative of Jesus. And uh, when the angel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and says that she will give birth, and she will give birth to Jesus, who is fully man, fully God, the angel tells Mary that Jesus will be a king who sits on a throne, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. There has been great kings and great kingdoms and great civilizations throughout history, but each one of them came to an end. They get a few hundred years at best before they come to an end. Even rulers who sat on a throne and ruled a great kingdom or even the known world, now we don't even know their names unless you're like a total history nerd. Kingdoms and kings come to an end. So for Mary to hear that this Jesus would be born and to his kingdom there would be no end is an amazing thing. And then as we look at Mark, we see Jesus as an adult come on the scene and his cousin John the Baptist is arrested. And we hear these words from Jesus. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, before this time in human history and in Bible history, there had been um, representatives of God's kingdom. There had been foreshadowing of God's kingdom. We had had prophets and priests and kings. We had had forerunners of the kingdom and the king coming. We had had the law to tell God's people what God's kingdom was like. We had kings to sit on an earthly throne and rule the people of God. We had had judges that judged not only other nations, but God's people. We had had prophets to speak on behalf of God, but all of these were just representatives foreshadowing of the king and the kingdom. But now Jesus is saying the time has been fulfilled. The time of history, the time of God's word, the time of God's promise, the one the prophet spoke of, all of those things are fulfilled. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he can say that because he is the king. He is the king of God's kingdom and the king of all history. And Jesus, fully man, fully God, walking this earth says, the kingdom Of God is at hand. He can say this because God in the flesh is walking amongst his people. As Jesus walked the earth and had a ministry, he talked a lot about the kingdom. Last spring, we did a whole series on the kingdom parables, all the parables where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a story to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. You can go back and catch up and listen to that series if you missed it. He also came to show what the kingdom of God was like. As we read through the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the four gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus, as we read these stories of what Jesus did and how he did it and the things that he said and the kind of people he interacted with, we learn something about the kingdom of God. We talked about it in our parable series about the upside-down kingdom. How Jesus comes and he takes the values of this earth and the values of humans, the stories of humans, and he flips everything upside down. There's a reason that the religious people didn't understand him and eventually crucified him. And the irreligious, the marginalized, the people of ill repute were drawn to him. That's a little bit about what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus also came and fed people physically, met their physical needs. He met their spiritual hunger as well. He came healing people physically to show the very power of God. Jews and Gentiles alike were drawn to him. People that society had cast out were drawn to him. He came and he showed us and he told us what the kingdom of God is like. He did not come to start a political movement. As I said, he came and the religious people didn't understand him. But his life showed us what the kingdom is like. And then not only in his life and his words, his life showed us what the kingdom is like. His death gives us an entry into his kingdom His resurrection says the kingdom is not just of this earth. And his ascension to be with the Father to prepare a place for us says that that there is a kingdom yet to come. Every part of what Jesus did is pointing us to this idea that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we find ourselves, you and I find ourselves, looking forward to a kingdom that is to come. And Jesus is currently building the kingdom through us. We'll get in a little bit more into that in just a minute. People in Jesus's day, just like we do, have questions about what the kingdom of God is like. In Luke chapter 17, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God does not always look like we think it's going to look. And the kingdom of God advancing does not always look like we think the kingdom of God advancing will look. In fact, we looked at this in our kingdom parable series, but the kingdom of God is often described in the Old and New Testament as a small seed that is buried in the ground and you don't see progress for a season. And then it starts growing. It starts advancing. It starts producing fruit. Jesus is saying, you're going to think the kingdom of God looks one way, and it advancing looks one way. You're going to think that making disciples looks one way. You're going to think that sanctification looks one way, but it's going to look different than you think. And he says to them—this last part is incredible—he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying, I'm the kingdom of God because I am the king. This all leads to the idea of, maybe you've heard of before that I want to talk about for a little while, the idea of the already and the not yet kingdom. See, the king has come and he's coming again, and the kingdom has come and is coming now. The kingdom is about a person, and that person is Jesus. And it's God's kingdom that is to come. But his kingdom is also coming. And so we find ourselves living in this already. If we are in Christ, we're already a part of his kingdom to come, and Jesus already sits on a throne, but we are still living in this body of flesh. And we are still living in a world that does not value the kingdom of God. And we still have an enemy that's uh, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So it's an already, but not yet, kingdom. The author of Hebrews describes it this way. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's one of those sentences that you have to do a double take, and you have to think, you know what, I don't think I understand what you just said. That's a really confusing concept. He's already made us perfect by a single offering. The offering that it's talking about is the offering of his very life on our behalf. So if we are in Christ, we are already made perfect because when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. But it says here that we are still being perfected. This is what the already and the not yet kingdom looks like. This is a major theological principle that's heady and hard to get our heads around, but it is also deeply practical and personal. If you are in Christ, don't you feel like some days that you were made for a different kingdom? That you were made for a different king? That nothing is satisfying you? That you are not finding any satisfaction in the things of this world. Don't you sometimes look at the way things are on this earth and just say, there's got to be more than this. Don't you look at the way things are and say, I must be made for something else. You have a a desire inside of you for the things of God. And if you are in Christ, that is actually the spirit of the living God. And God's word tells us that that spirit is actually groaning out for the things of God. You feel it. I feel it. We live for a kingdom that is to come. But oh man, we really live in the kingdom of this earth and in a body of flesh. This is one of those deeply theological principles that the more we think about it, the more we see that it's true. We're called in scripture time and time again, we're called aliens and strangers on this earth. An alien is someone that's alienated from where they came from. That's us if we are in Christ and his spirit lives Inside of us. So this is the kingdom that is to come and is coming. This is the kingdom that the spirit of the living God inside of us is groaning out to be a part of. This is the kingdom that we are made for. And it's a good kingdom. We looked at in the second sermon what chaos has brought to this world. We looked at what sin and chaos and us going our own way has done to our own lives on a very personal level but we also looked at what it's done sociopolitically and throughout history. Living for our kingdom, living for our flesh, living for our way, making ourselves the main character of the story, has led to more and more chaos and separation from God and separation from one another. So God's kingdom is in stark contrast to the kingdom of this world. So, we need to talk about how we join the kingdom of God. What does it look like to join the kingdom of God? So open up with me to Acts chapter 2. That was our scripture reading tonight. That's where we'll conclude this portion, and then we'll get into the application with the rest of our time together. But in Acts chapter 2, what takes place is this is right after Pentecost. We heard about Pentecost a couple weeks ago where the community of Jesus followers is formed. Where the Spirit of God falls on people and they hear the good news of what Christ has done for them in their own language. A supernatural act of God. And then people are coming to Christ thousands at a time each day. There's just a huge outpouring of the Spirit. And the, the church, the, the first century church is being built as the spirit falls. And spirit falls, people are giving their life to Christ. And Peter, who is an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, he stands up and gives us one of the f- first sermons in the new church, the first sermon in the book of Acts. In Acts two, twenty-one, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter describes how that will happen. It's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He goes through and describes what the good news of the gospel is. He describes, hey, here's the story of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And when you call on his name, you will be saved. And that's a much better story than the story that you are living out now. He comes and he gives a gospel presentation and people are responding to it. And then at the conclusion of that is where we pick up in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Those that heard this message said, This is a much better story than the one I'm currently living out for myself. This kingdom that you're describing and this king that you're describing are much better than me sitting on the throne and my kingdom. And then Peter lays out for them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them to turn from their old ways and turn to the living God, to put their trust not in their own story, to put their trust not in their own abilities as the main character, but to put their trust in this Jesus who has lived and died for them. And then we see the rest of the verses that I read at the beginning here of the sermon. Peter here is laying out for them the story and the good news of the gospel. He's telling them how to get in on this story of God. He's telling them how to join the kingdom of God. And it's not a new religious system. It's not earn your way to God by doing these things. It's by putting their faith and their trust for the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus alone. It's stepping out of the way. It's stepping off of the throne and seeing Jesus as the rightful king and living for the right kingdom, God's kingdom, instead of their own. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to talk about what do we do in response to this gospel call? What do we do in response to the story of God? How do we merge God's story with ours and ours with his? So first, we repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." So we're told here in Acts and then in Romans and throughout Scripture that we are to repent, which means to turn. Turn from our sinful nature. Turn from our sinful deeds. Turn from our ways of chaos. Turn from our own kingdom living. Turn from putting ourselves on the throne of our lives and start living for God's kingdom. Repentance is really turning away from one thing, but it's also turning towards God. It's now putting our hope and our trust in him. Turning from sin and turning towards Christ. And then baptism. Baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward reality. It's confessing to the church and to the world, I have put my faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. For a number of reasons now, we usually have this event where we pray, we receive Christ, we realize we need him to be our Savior, and then we go to a baptism class, and then we get baptized, The next time we we do baptisms in here, at Old Brick, we have to do it outside, so it's not the best time of year to do baptism, so you have to wait till the spring, sorry. But it wasn't like this in Bible times. When they talk about repent and be baptized, they weren't saying that baptism saves you, but what would happen is someone say, I want to follow Christ, and they'd say, let's go baptize you, like right now. (laughs) So when you hear the apostles talking about repent and be baptized, they're saying, repent, put your faith in Christ, identify with the community of God, identify with being in Christ. Baptism is that outward sign of an inward reality in a number of ways. Paul in Romans 6 and also in Colossians 2 says that we are buried with Christ in his death. Our sins— and our flesh nature die in him as he is put in a tomb we lay down our lives so we go under the water symbolizing being buried with him in his death but then we're raised up out of the water just as he rose from the dead the water is also a symbol of being washed our sins are being washed away I just, this is kind of a cool one with the story of God. We've been talking about chaos and God bringing chaos into order. Well, in um, the ancient Near East, water was a symbol of chaos. It's amazing that then God takes what is chaotic and brings order to it and even redeems it. That, That us being lowered in the water and brought back up out of the water is also symbolic of God taking what was chaotic in our heart bringing order. That's incredible. So he tells them, and scripture tells us, repent and be baptized. Stop putting your hope in yourself to find God. You will never find God on your own efforts, on your own religious pursuits. The only God is the one described in God's word in the Bible. And the Bible tells us that God came to us. That Jesus came fully man, fully God, and showed us what the kingdom of God is like, and then gave his life so that we could be a part of it. It's incredible. Other religions have religious figures that talk about and teach about the kingdom, but then they give you endless steps of how to get to that kingdom. Jesus comes and teaches about the kingdom and shows us what the kingdom of God is like and then gives his life so we can actually be a part of it. That's good news. 100 or 1,000 or endless steps of how to get to God is not good news. I will fall short every time. Just like I fall short of what this book says all the time. Jesus knew we would fall short. That's why he came and gave his very life for us. So the first question I have for you as we talk about applying the story of God to our lives is, have you repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus? Are you found in him? Have you laid down your rights? Have you laid down your feeble attempts to honor God or to be a good person or bring the chaotic world we live in into order? Have you given that up and given your life to Christ? want to encourage you to do so if you have not done so. And if you feel like, man, I'm just not ready. I got more questions. Great. Take the next step. Ask those questions. Read the Bible for yourself. Meet with one of the pastors here. Meet with your community group leader. Meet with someone that identifies with being in Christ, and just start asking your questions. Next, if we are in Christ, we are then told to make Disciples. As you've been reading about the story of God, and as we've been talking about this kingdom that is to come, is there a little question in the back of your mind that becomes a bigger question? Especially when you go through times of suffering. That question being, why am I still here? Why does God leave us in the already, but the not yet? Why don't we give our lives to Christ and then Boom, he beams us up, we're with God, no more chaos, everything is good. We need to be able to answer that question for two reasons, one positive, one negative. The negative is we need to figure out what the heck he left us here for, because it feels kind of mean some days. Wait, I could be perfect, but you left me here in this body of flesh? Or I could be with everyone rejoicing with you. Instead, I'm going to family Thanksgiving and it's going to be all kinds of awkward or all kinds of bad. God, what are you, why did you leave me here? The positive is we need to know what he wants us to do while we're here. So let's talk through some options of why he left us here. Here are some things I thought of and also some kind of common ideas of why we are here, and how we use our time. Let's look at our options for why he left us here. Could it be that he wants to entertain us for a while? That he just wants us to entertain ourselves so time will go by more quickly? I'm going to say probably not. Because heaven is going to be so much more entertaining than a Netflix binge. He didn't leave us here just to entertain ourselves to death is it so that we can suck as much life out of this world as we can and get every last hedonistic pleasure out of it definitely not because the pleasures that we experience here on the earth they're gifts from him but they're also just an appetizer the full course meal is yet to come so it's not that Maybe he leaves us here because he doesn't care. Could that be it? Apparently not, because he came to the very ones that he created and he laid down his life for them, showing us for all time that he cares for us. Maybe he just doesn't understand what it's like to be on this earth, but actually he does. Jesus came and he lived among his people. He suffered in every way. He was tempted in every way. He experienced hurt and loss on a scale that none of us can even comprehend. So that can't be it. Maybe he just really likes us going to church. He wants us to play church for a while before he comes back or before he takes us home. That can't be it. Because coming to church is great. It's a picture of the kingdom, but it's far from perfect. And when I was a kid, I thought heaven was just church forever, and I'm like, count me out. Like, is there another option? Because church forever was not my idea of fun as a kid. I'm like, the service is already long enough. I don't need an eternal long service. It's probably not that. Does he want us to partition ourselves away from anything that's hard and away from a culture that does not value the things of God and just wait for the end of the world? No, that's clearly in Scripture. That's not what he's called us to do. That's not what Jesus did. Is that a bat? Interesting. Messenger from Satan. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And there he goes. <clears throat> he was here first. We're invading his space. Um, so here's, here's some of the options. Here's the options, and none of them hold water. None of them hold up to reality. None of them hold up to God's word. None of them are even practical. God's word gives us some direction And we see in one of the first five books of the Bible, Exodus, and then three times in Revelation, God's word calls us something that I think gives us some direction of what we are to do here on this earth. Will someone tell me if he, like, lands on the screen or something? Just let me know if he's back. Cool. Um, In Exodus 19.6, we read the promise that he will make us into a kingdom of priests— And a holy nation In Revelation chapter 1 it says Jesus Christ is the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of Kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever in Revelation chapter 5 we read and you who have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It says, when we are resurrected and triumphing with him, we are called the priests of God. The priests of God. Let's look at an Old Testament priest. The priest would purify themselves. They would go through um, ornate and specific rituals to purify themselves so they could make offerings on behalf of the people. So once a year one high priest should be selected to go into the Holy of Holies and commune with the very Spirit of God, priests would rearrange their entire lives, how they lived every part of their lives in order to atone for the sins of the people or to be a representative of God's kingdom to the people, to speak on behalf of the people to God and for God to the people. The priests rearranged their lives as an ambassador as a representative of the kingdom of God. Or think about missionaries, those that live in a foreign country, that rearrange their entire lives in order to reach the people that they are trying to reach. Uh, starting next week, we're going to have some friends here. Elizabeth will be here, Alex and Trisha and their boys will be here starting next week, worshiping with us. They're folks that have been sent out from this very congregation. They have rearranged their entire lives to reach the people group that God has sent them to. Elizabeth started a business. She does not have a degree in business. She has no idea what she's doing. Alex has gone to school for the last 10 years to become a pilot, and not till January will he fly his first solo flight, delivering supplies to people on islands that otherwise could not be reached. He has spent 10 years of education rearranging his family, having a child born in another country in the middle of nowhere to reach the people that God has sent him to. Do you know that you have been sent just like them? Did you know that God's word calls his people a kingdom of priests? God's word is telling us with this example that we are to rearrange our lives to be his ambassadors. That we are to rearrange our lives to reach the people he has sent us to. And there is no mistake that you are right here in Iowa City, right here, right now. He has sent you here just as intentionally and just as much as he has sent Elizabeth overseas and Alex and Trisha overseas. You are specifically called to be here, to be his disciple who makes disciples. How are we rearranging our lives around the kingdom and the purposes of God? That's what God's word is continually asking us. And often what happens when we replace Jesus as the main character and we take center stage We may assent to the things of Jesus, and we may say we follow Jesus, and we may do the spiritual disciplines, and we may go to church and do all the things, but very subtly, we start to act as main character, and then we start seeing the symptoms of making ourselves the main character. Because when we are the main character, we don't make disciples. Because it's too hard and it's uncomfortable. And we've got to do things that are difficult and talk to people that are not like us. God has called us to be a kingdom of priests that realize that we're in the already and not yet kingdom and that Jesus is the main character who has sent us here and left us here for such a time as this to go and make disciples. God has called us to glorify the Father by making disciples. Jesus did it. He told us to do it. The first century church did it. And now when the church, the collective people of God, makes disciples who make disciples, they survive and thrive through anything. Going to church, calling ourselves Christians, it doesn't change history. It doesn't change the world but being and making disciples does. That's what God has called us to do. No program of the local church will ever trump God's call on us to make disciples who make disciples. And anything we do as a church is just trying to position all of us in position to be a disciple who makes disciples. That's what we are supposed to be about as a church and about God's people. And part of making disciples is being a part of a local church. God's word asks us to be a part of a local church. You cannot do the majority of the New Testament if you are not a part of a biblical community. Start reading through the letters that The apostles wrote the letters of the New Testament are written to churches, to communities, telling them how to be God's people in community. We can't even do the New Testament without being in community with one another. And so a way that God has for us to make disciples is by being a part of the local church. So we can be equipped to be a disciple, and we can equip others to be a disciple, and we can go out and make new disciples who are then brought into the family and community of God. And what is a church? The Bible uses a word called ekklesia, It's two Greek words put together. One means out or exit, and one means to call. So God's church, God's people, are the called out ones. What are they called out from? They're called out from a life of chaos. They are called out from a life of sin. They are called out from a life where they are the main character. They are called out from these little missions that are not as big as God's mission— They are called out from their culture. They are called out from their flesh. They are called out and chosen and set apart as God's people for God's purposes. And if you are in Christ and his spirit lives in you, you have been called out. You have a new boss, a new king, a new main character in your story. And it's Jesus, his spirit inside of you, and the glory of the Father. We want to ask you to commit to a local Church. So we want to ask what that looks like. In God's word, the church is called a body. The church is called a marriage. The church is called a house where Jesus is the cornerstone. It's called a tabernacle, the place where God's spirit lives. As we come together as God's people, as a biblical community, he does a work in us and through us. For the glory of God. So we want to be a church that does that well. We want to be about making disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. And then lastly, we want to live from a place of victory. We want to live from a place of victory. In Wales, in the year 1904, there was a church service very similar to the one that you're in right now. And at the end of the sermon, the pastor got up in 1904, got up in front of a small congregation and said, if anyone would like to pray with me for revival to start in our land, please meet with me over here beside the stage. He invited the congregation to stay and pray. And 17 young people stayed with the pastor afterwards and prayed for revival. And they didn't pray for revival to start out in their community or even in their church. They prayed for revival to start in their hearts and lives. And they made four commitments. That Jesus would be the most important thing in their life. That they would confess their sin to God and one another. They would go home and that they would tell someone in their life about Jesus. And they would practice the spiritual disciplines together as a community. Seventeen people after a service just like this. You may think the crowd is sparse tonight, but let's just talk about 17 of us staying. And instead of stuffing our faces with turkey, praying for a revival. Not that turkey is bad. Food can be part of revival too. But they, they stepped aside with the pastor and they prayed for revival. Over the next few months, 100,000 people were saved In Wales, a country of 2 million, saw 100,000 people saved. And then revival grew from there to Britain, Scandinavia, parts of Europe, North America, the mission fields of India and of the Orient, and Africa and Latin America. A worldwide revival started because 17 people decided that they weren't going to settle for the status quo in their lives anymore. They decided that the spirit of the living God lived inside of them. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. The same spirit that did miracles in God's word. The same spirit that has been doing miracles in the church ever since the book of Acts. The same spirit that lived in each one of them. Miracles happen in our lives when we realize we can't do anything apart from Christ. We need to be a church that remembers that we operate from a place of victory. And this isn't some bogus prosperity gospel, God wants you to be rich thing, but we do serve a king and a kingdom. And that king is already sitting on the throne, and he sent his spirit to live inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of losing the battle of the flesh. I'm tired of getting caught up in things that don't matter. I'm tired of getting caught up in other stories from my life besides the one Jesus has written for me. And the best way for us to humble ourselves and to operate from this place of victory is through praying. Praying, asking God to do something. Why do little kids ask Santa for things at Christmas? Well, the materialism, industrial complex, and all that, of course. But why do kids ask Santa for things at Christmas? It's because they don't have it. They ask for a Red Ryder BB gun, or they ask for a sled, or they ask for a video game because they don't have it. We need to realize we don't have it. We don't have it to be a disciple. We don't have what it takes to make disciples. We don't have what it takes to be God's church. We need to humble ourselves and pray and cry out to the living God that he would do a work among us, not for our name's sake or Grace Community Church's sake, but for his name alone. If revival takes place in this church, in Iowa City, At the University of Iowa, it is because we prayed. That's it. The majority of this city and this university is not looking for God. They're not looking for a church just waiting for you to invite them to church. It's going to take a revival that only God could take credit for, and it's not going to happen unless we ask for it and pray for it and ask God to start a revival first in our hearts. Paul talks about the revival that the gospel brings in 2 Corinthians. He ends chapter 5 by saying, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he talks about what the gospel does. The gospel leads us from a place of victory, but here's what the victory looks like. It's victory through, starting in verse 4 of chapter 6, endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, uh, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, weapons of righteousness, Honor, dishonor, through slander, through praise. We're treated as imposters, yet we live for what is true. We are treated as unknown, yet we are well known by God. As dying, but behold, we live. As punished, but not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. God's people operate from a place of victory as they suffer. And as they lay down their rights, they lay down their possessions, they lay down their very lives for the things of God. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's what God's kingdom people are called to do, even in our sorrow, even in the chaos we find ourselves in. Always rejoicing because we live for the kingdom to come. And lastly, in God's word in Isaiah 57, we are told where the spirit of God dwells. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God lives both in a high and holy place, but he also lives in the hearts of those who are lowly and contrite. Before him, And then their spirit is revived. I need my spirit and my heart and my life revived by the spirit of the living God. If we are going to stick it out to the end as God's people, if we are going to do what he has called us to do and left us here to do, we need to be revived by the spirit of God. And we need to cry out to him for him to do what only he can do. That's the story of God using his people for his purposes. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have a plan for us. Thank you that you have not just left us here in the already but not yet kingdom. God, because you think it's fun or for any of these other purposes, God, you have done it so that we would be ambassadors of Christ, that we would be a kingdom of priests. God, we acknowledge our need to you. We need your spirit to do what only you can do. God, we want to lay down our rights. We want to lay down our strengths. We want to lay down our weaknesses and give them up to you. And we want to be those people that are humble and contrite before you. And we want to see your spirit do a work among us that we and everyone else, that the outside world looking in knows is the spirit and the power of God. God, I pray for those tonight that are considering putting their faith in you. God, I pray that they would see the beauty of what Christ has done for them. And God, I pray that they would see their need for you and give their lives, not to this church, not to some religious system, but give their lives to the living God through the work of Christ. God, we want to be your good news people because you have shared with us some really good news. In Jesus' name, amen.